We're going to be going back to 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been studying through the book of Peter for a few months now. We have gotten to chapter 2. We're about halfway through. And we're at the end of kind of the first section of 1 Peter. 1 Peter um, is broken up into generally two parts. The first part is the introduction and foundational truths of our salvation. The second part is the application of that. And we'll start that in a couple of weeks. But we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2 this morning. Verses 11 and 12. So 1 Peter chapter 2, just verses 11 and 12. And if you found that, if you'll follow along as I read, starting at verse 11, the Bible says, Dearly beloved... I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they shall, I'm sorry, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's take a minute and pray, and we will look at our message together. Father, thank you again for your love Thank you for your word in which you've revealed everything that we need to know, that you want us to know about who you are, about how to be reconciled to you, and how to live our lives so that we are pleasing to you. So, Father, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us submissive hearts. I pray that each one of us would be ready to listen, to hear, and to apply those things that you have for us today. Lord, remove distractions, open our minds, I pray, that your word might be received with willingness and with thanksgiving. And Father, just fill me with your spirit. Give me power, give me strength and voice and wisdom. Give me the words to speak so that we might hear your word proclaimed, that we might be taught by you today, and we might know that we've heard the truth. And in all this, we give you the praise and glory, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Peter, um, we have looked at chapter 1, we've started chapter 2, but in chapter 1, Peter spends the entire chapter basically reminding us that we are born again by the blood of Christ. It's a, it's a salvation chapter. It's all the things that are encompassed in our salvation. We've been chosen by God to eternal life. We've been redeemed by God to an incorruptible inheritance. That salvation is secured by the power of God's word. So there's all these different aspects that we saw in chapter 1 about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in light of all of those wonderful blessings of our salvation, by by the time you get down to, to verses 14, 15, and 16, then the command or the responsibility comes with those blessings. And he says, in all manner of conduct, all manner of your lifestyle, be holy because God is holy. And so that is our response to the salvation that we have. In chapter 2, Peter begins with an exhortation for us to sincerely desire the milk of God's word. In other words, we need to know everything there is to know about God, about what he wants for us, about what holiness is that he's called us to as his children. And so we should have that sincere desire for his word. And he reminds us why this holiness is important in chapter 2 because we are all part of the spiritual house called the church. 
And it is that house that each of us are little stones, living stones, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the founder and the foundation of the church. And so not only are we stones in that church, but we are priests in that temple. And we've been looking at that the last few weeks, how the spiritual priesthood that we've been called to demands of us spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. Not just any worship will do, not just any sacrifice will do. It is those that are acceptable in his sight. And by the time you get to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, again, Peter is still emphasizing the unity we have in Christ, not based on our efforts or the commonalities we have as people, but we are bound as one people in Jesus Christ, as his church. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, the people of God. That makes us different. And it is us who deserved judgment, and yet who God gave mercy. And that's how he rounds out verse 10. And the reason God has poured his mercy on us and given us all of this in Jesus Christ is so that we might show forth his praises to the world around us. And that's salvation in a nutshell. I mean, that's the purpose, why we're saved, how we're saved, and to what we are called in salvation. And so we come to verses 11 and 12, and Peter summarizes, again, everything that he's been saying in chapters 1 and 2. As you look at these two sentences, or these two verses, we really don't see anything new. Peter's just repeating many of the things that he's already said. He emphasizes who we are as believers in the sinful world, how we should live in holiness, because we are sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, in this world. We don't belong here. We belong in heaven. And then God's purpose for calling us to a life of holiness while we remain in this world. It's all here in 11 and 12, basically summarizing everything he's told us so far in chapters 1 and 2. And we are, who does he say we are? I'm sorry, who are we? Who does he say we are in verse 11? He says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Now we saw that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Because that's how he opened his book. I write to the strangers who are dispersed throughout the different uh, uh, principalities. Okay? So we are strangers, he says. And because we're strangers, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So we're not supposed to live according to the desires that defined us before, that define the rest of the world. We are to be different. And when we do that then the people who are unsaved around us, the rest of the people in the world, will see that we are different, and they will turn to God and glorify him, and that's verse 12. So we don't have anything new today. So really, I mean, we could stop there and say, okay, we've covered it, we've gotten it um, together, we understand what Peter's teaching us, but... I uh, can't leave these verses alone because there's much more that we could dig out of Scripture. And it's good for us to hear the same things over and over. When I was in college, I got a degree in education. One of the things my professors stressed with us as potential teachers is that repetition aids learning. And so you may say, well, you repeat yourself a lot in your messages. That's because those are the important points I want you to remember. Jesus 
himself used repetition to teach his disciples and others the important principles of his kingdom. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus says the same things over and over and over in different ways, but it's the same points. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6 to put the brethren in remembrance of these things. And so doing thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. So repetition is good for us. We need to be reminded. So today we're going to be seeing things which Peter has already taught us, but we're going to be looking at them in a little bit different perspective so that all of us can continue to grow in the understanding of why these truths that God has given us here in this book are so important for our daily Christian lives. Okay? When your children are little, you remind them 20 times a day, brush your teeth, wash your hands, right? And hopefully, it sticks with them so that by the time they're 40, you don't have to call them up and say, did you remember to brush your teeth this morning? Okay? That's the point. We're going over these things again because it's important for us to have them ingrained in us because it becomes the substance of our lives in Christ. And so first, Peter tells us again or reminds us of our relationship with God and with the world. And he starts with these words here in verse 11. Dearly beloved. We are dearly beloved of God. God loves us. God loves us with a special love. The Bible says in John 3.16 that he loves the whole world, and that's why he gave his son. But as his church and as his chosen people, there's a special love that God has for us. It goes beyond just the general love for the world. And he calls us dearly beloved. Now, he's not just saying that to remind us of God's love for us, but that's the biggest point. Peter also cares about these people that he's writing to, including us. They're beloved to him. And how does he demonstrate that love from him to us as his listeners? He reminds us of the things that are important, that God does love us, that God has called us to a life of holiness, that God has a purpose for our lives, that there are blessings in that life. And so he reminds us again of these important principles. But God loves us in that he sent his son to die for our sins. That's the greatest love that he could have shown. Jesus said, no, there's no greater friend that you can have than a man would lay down his life for you. And that's what Jesus did. So when Peter shares the message of God's love for us here, he shows us, that in God's love, he has mercy. He bestows mercy and grace. Those are the, the manifestations of God's love, and it is that mercy and grace which brings us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And Jesus then tells us that because he loves us, we are to love him. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's why Peter reminds us, what are those commandments? Luke 6, 46, Jesus asks this question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you're not going to do what I say? We can't claim a relationship with Jesus if we don't care what he, ta what he says to us and what he wants us to do and what we've been called to do as his people. So our obedience to God and living in holiness, as Peter uh, outlines here, is not about our duty Yes, it is our responsibility to live holy lives, but it should be a response out of a loving heart to God's love 
that we want to be what God wants us to be. And that's the point Peter makes all through these passages. God loves us. We should love him. And if we love him, then we should want to live in holiness as he's called us to. So he starts by reminding us of, our, of, our, um, of God's love for us and the relationship that we have that he's explained in chapters 1 and 2 already. And then he calls us strangers and pilgrims. He's reminding us of our relationship with the world. Because we are the objects of God's love, our relationship with the world changes, with other people. And he calls us strangers and pilgrims. Now, he's used this word stranger again in chapter 1. We saw that. And literally, it means that we are non-citizens. We do not have our home. We do not belong to this earth, is what he's saying. We are foreigners whose home is in some other country, but we're temporarily residing in this house, in this place called earth. And so he calls us strangers, but then he adds this word in chapter 2, in verse 11, he says, we're also pilgrims. This is a term he hasn't used before. A pilgrim is one who's on a journey, somebody who's going someplace. We're not just here visiting. We're actually on a journey through this earth. And a, a pilgrim is one who's on a journey, specifically a spiritual journey through a strange land destined for a holy place or a temple. And many people of different religions embark on pilgrimages to fulfill requirements of their religion. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, Israelites were required to go to Jerusalem every year to make the sacrifices that were required by God. They did that pilgrimage every year. We know Muslims take pilgrimages or make the pilgrimages to Mecca, which is the birthplace of Muhammad, the founder of their religion. And so Peter uses that same idea of us on earth. We are on a pilgrimage, a journey through this life. But what is our destination? It's not someplace we're going to arrive on this earth. In Hebrews 11, it talks about all the patriarchs and the great Christians who've gone before us, and it says they look toward a holy city or a heavenly city. The home that we're trying to get to on this pilgrimage is not a place on this earth. It is heaven. That is our destination. That is our home. And so like the patriarchs of Hebrews 11, we're traveling toward a heavenly city, not one made by hands, but which has been prepared for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's our destination, to be with Jesus in heaven. That's the ultimate goal. And so while we're here on earth, we are just strangers. We are just pilgrims journeying through this life until we get to that ultimate home. Albert Barnes suggests this, because we're strangers and pilgrims then, we should not regard the earth as our home. We should not seek to acquire permanent possessions here, as if we are to remain here. But we should act as travelers who merely seek a temporary lodging without expecting permanently to reside in this place. We should allow no permanent attachments to be formed to this world as to impede our journey to our final home. And even while we're engaged in the necessary callings of life on this earth, our studies, our work, 
our buying and selling, all of our thoughts and affections should be on our home country, just like Jesus told us. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And therefore, we should also not encumber ourselves with much of this world's goods, since a traveler takes as few things along as possible. If you were traveling, or if you were getting ready to go on a long journey, you wouldn't pack up everything in your house to carry with you. Now, my daughter Katie took a few years to learn that. We used to tease her about her apocalypse bag that she would have to pack with every uh, trinket that she could find in her room when she was little. She does a lot better now. But the idea is, Peter is saying, we are travelers, we are pilgrims. We don't need to burden ourselves with all the stuff of this world during this journey. And the more we accumulate that attaches us to this world, the more distraction we have from the real goal that we are trying to achieve in this life. So he says we're pilgrims. That's Peter's point here. Because you are strangers and pilgrims then, and he uses these words in verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What he's saying is because of our new relationship with God in salvation, we should not live according to the old desires that we used to live in, according to the desires that are attached to this world. And so he uses these words, abstain. That means stay away from, put off, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, this isn't the first time we heard this from Peter. If you go back in chapter 1, remember in verses 14 through 16, when the call to holiness is put forth, he starts this way, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And he says those lusts that we lived in, those desires that controlled us, we lived in those because we were ignorant of another way. But God has given us that other way now in Jesus Christ. We have his spirit who empowers us to live apart from those lusts. And so here in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, abstain from them. They shouldn't be part of your life. And the point is, if we are going to obey God and be controlled by God's spirit, then we cannot live in the same lusts and desires that defined us before we were saved. And the same lusts and desires that all the other unsaved people of the earth are defined by. Paul has the same advice for us in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 18 through 20. He says, For many walk, talking of unbelievers, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Some of these people were in the churches that Paul was visiting. But he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. They pay attention. Their their value is placed in earthly things. They accumulate earthly things. They want to satisfy themselves. That's what Paul says. But then he goes on in verse 20, he says, but our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our life, everything we have to look forward to, everything that we want should be in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter that our lusts, these fleshly lusts, are one of the obstacles that keep us 
and prevent us from being holy as God has called us to be. So the question is, what are these lusts that we are to avoid? Peter doesn't define them clearly here, but John does. So if you'll turn over to 1 John with me, just a few pages ahead, 1 John chapter 2. You don't have to turn far. In my Bible, it's about four pages. 1 John chapter 2, and in verses 15 through 16, John defines the lust that Peter is talking about. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15, the Apostle John says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In those verses, John outlines three types of lusts, or three types of desires that cause us to to stray apart from God's will and to miss the holiness that he's called us to. First, he says there's lust of the eyes. Now, let me try to simply define these for you, okay? The lust of the eyes would be those internal desires based, many of them, on our physical needs that naturally originate within our body. Let me give you an example. Things like hunger and thirst, right? All of us have those desires or those needs. We desire food. We desire water. We have to fulfill those needs, okay? So there's hunger and thirst. There's sleep that our body needs to rejuvenate and recover. But there's also things like the desire for comfort, the desire for safety, the desire for good health, and even the desire for sexual satisfaction all of which are not evil in and of themselves because God created them in us. That's the way he created our bodies. We need these things. But when Adam and Eve fell, sin entered the world. And the sin nature that we now carry then causes us not to want to fulfill these needs and desires in God's way, but to find shortcuts, to find other paths and other ways in which to fulfill those desires and to do it for our own purposes, for our own satisfaction, not to glorify God. And so if we take things like hunger and thirst and then we pervert them as Satan has done, then they turn into what the Bible calls gluttony, excess of trying to fulfill my desires, which are natural. But the fulfillment then becomes evil because of those lusts. Drunkenness, another way not just to fulfill our thirst, but to help us depart from the world's evils and all of the stress we're under for a little while. Laziness, that's excess of sleep. Sexual immorality, Obsessions with physical health and physical fitness that rise to an idolatrous level. Those are the lusts that John is talking about. The physical lusts of our body, their natural desires, but we elevate them to a point where they're more important than God to us, and then we seek to satisfy them in our own way apart from God's prescribed way. And so God's not saying that we shouldn't have these physical needs and desires met at all. 
He's saying that he will meet them according to his plan. Remember in Philippians 4.19, God makes a promise. My God shall supply all your needs. And the context of that is these Macedonian Christians are broke. They're in poverty, and yet they're trying to support the Apostle Paul. They don't have money to buy food for themselves. And Paul says, God's going to supply your need. Jeremiah in Lamentations uses this phrase, the Lord is my portion. Basically, what it means is the Lord is my sustenance. I don't depend on food and water and sleep. I depend on God. That's the way we should seek to satisfy these things, the natural desires of our body, through God's provision and in God's way. And yet, in our sin nature, we pervert them. We go to excess. We do it in our own way, apart from God's plan, And then we become guilty of idolatry, basically, elevating now these desires and our our need to satisfy these desires in our own way above God's desires for us. And since we do not belong to the world, this body was made for this world. If we don't belong to this world, then what is associated with this body should not be the most important thing to us. And yet many people live with satisfying those physical desires as the most important thing in their lives. And so that's the lust of the flesh that John talks about here. We are commanded to avoid being focused and driven by these physical desires of our body or trying to fulfill them in an excessive way, and God defines that as sin. So Peter says, avoid them. There's a second kind that John defines here. He says the lust of the flesh is number one. Number two, there's the lust of the eyes. Now, these would be desires that originate externally from our body, things that we see around us in the world, okay? The things that we see and desire to have. And this would include things like money, material possessions, entertainment, to travel. Again, are these things wrong in and of themselves? No. Okay, God has given us opportunities to have money so that we might pay our bills, that we might help other people. Okay, we have physical possessions, a house, so that we can be hospitable and use that house to serve other people. Okay, Um, entertainment, does God not want us to be entertained? I mean, I feel like some Christians think that we should sit around with our hands folded and our heads down and have this grouchy look on our face and not ever have fun. That's not what God wants, but he wants us to be entertained by the right things. He wants us to find happiness in the right things, okay? So it's not the things themselves or the desires themselves that are wrong. It's how we seek to fulfill them. And if we elevate fulfilling those desires above God, we make them more important than God is in our lives, And John warns us, just as Peter does, about being sidetracked from God's plan by having these desires for material things, in this instance, become more important than God. That's the lust of the the eyes. And then there's the third kind, the pride of life. These are a little harder to define because they're more intangible. I'll call them the psychological aspects or needs of man. These include things like our desire for acceptance, our desire for respect, 
the need to be loved and to love, to control our circumstances, our reputation, even our self-esteem. I studied all these things when, when I took several classes in psychology. Okay, It's the intangible parts of the humanity, but they're legitimate needs, legitimate desires that come out of our body. The interesting thing about all of these, acceptance, respect, love, control, reputation, even self-esteem, God has not provided any way in Scripture of having these things met through earthly means. The earth cannot fulfill these things. The earth cannot fulfill our love or our need for love. The earth cannot fulfill our need for acceptance, for worth, for value. And when we seek things in the earth to try to fulfill these things, then again, we're replacing God with something tangible or intangible on this earth that God never intended. Everything in Scripture about this part of us, this psychological, these intangible needs, everything in Scripture points us toward what? Deny yourself. Not fulfill yourself, deny yourself. Consider others better than yourselves. So much for self-esteem, right? Not being concerned about what men think about you. What about our reputation? And then especially a focused emphasis on humility and meekness as we learn to love others more than we love ourselves. You can't find fulfillment in those things anywhere in this world because the world can't provide that. And so every three of these types of, or, or every one of these three of types of lusts is related to this earth and our earthly body and us elevating those desires, whether they be physical or intangible or things we desire to have, we elevate satisfying those desires by something other than God. Now our bodies, again, we're made to exist in this physical world. So if our bodies and the desires that come from these physical bodies is what drives us, then we will be focused on uh, fulfilling them in this world and not in the way God wants us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul explains how our earthly body is not made for heaven. He said the corruptible can't go where there is incorruption. Okay, And so we only have the corruptible bodies for a little while. The things that are attached to life in this physical body are only here for a little while. Okay, At the end of time, when God destroys this world, and Peter describes later in his book, he said the elements will melt with fervent heat. That means everything in this world and everything about this world is going to go away, including this physical body and all of the needs and all of the desires that are, that are attached to it. It's all going to go away. We're not going to take any of that to heaven. When we go to heaven, we get a brand new body. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 15, an incorruptible body. And that's the body which has no physical needs and desires from this earth because all of our needs and desires in that incorruptible body will be met by an incorruptible God in heaven where we will live forever. But that's what Peter is saying 
we're too much focused on our physical bodies and this physical earth, and we get so attached that we think those physical needs are so important that we let them control everything that we do. And that's idolatry. And Peter says, don't live in fleshly lusts. Don't get attached to the world. That's why he calls us strangers and pilgrims. And that's why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Don't fall in love with this life because there's something better to come. What you truly love will define how you truly live. And since we're not citizens of this world, if we're truly saved, then we shouldn't let our fleshly lusts anchor us to this fleshly world. We don't belong here. So in these three types of lusts or desires, there's danger for one who's not a true citizen of this earth, but rather a citizen of a heavenly city. That's our goal. And so Peter says, avoid these lusts, abstain from them. That's the command. So what does that look like? Let's take the quiz and find out, okay? Here's the the evaluation. You don't have to write your answers down, but pay attention, okay? Do you let any of those things that we just talked about interfere with your worship and service to God or your fellowship and service to others? Your hunger, your thirst, food, drink, sleep, the stuff you own, and taking care of the stuff you own. What about your need for acceptance and love? Does any of that interfere with your worship of God or your service to other people? Let me give you some examples. What reasons do you, are, do you f- seem as valid for staying home from church? Okay? Too tired? Got things that need to be done to your physical, earthly house or car? You can't sit that long because it hurts. Or you're too hungry before the service ends. Seriously, are those legitimate reasons not to come to church if our goal is heavenly? Based on what John and Peter both define as fleshly lust, those are invalid reasons. Those are fleshly lusts. Things that anchor us to this world. Are you truly tired and just don't have the strength? And I'm not questioning. I know my wife struggles sometimes. All right? Is that a good reason to not do what God wants us to do? I'm not saying just come to church. I'm saying not to serve the Lord or worship him or serve others. Oh, I'm just too tired. We read this morning, Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's God's word. Do you believe it's true? So how often do we get to use the excuse, I'm sorry, God, I'm just too tired? We rely and hold on to our fleshly lusts to control us. Maybe you do come regularly to your one service a week. That might be good enough for you. But did you ever consider this, that being at church is not about what you get out of it? It might be what you bring to it. After all, worship is defined as giving. You give 
God prays. You give your offerings. You give your attention to his word. You give edification to other people who are here in the congregation. It's all about giving. And so if you only come to church to get, you're actually here to fulfill your fleshly lust, even though you think it's spiritual. Some people avoid church because they don't feel accepted or respected there. Well, church is supposed to be where Christians gather, right? So if you don't feel accepted or respected there, go there and show people the way Christians ought to show acceptance and respect for other people. Teach them by your presence. It's not about what you get out of it. It's what you bring to it. See, that's what worship and service is defined by. Otherwise, we're just there to fulfill my fleshly lust of trying to impress God about how good of a Christian I am. Let's move on to question number two. What controls you? Or let me say it this way. What can you not function normally without? Okay? Now, I don't think anybody here is a drunkard, but what about coffee? And I know this is taboo in Christian circles because... Uh, coffee is the Christian booze, right? We all have to have it. It's acceptable. But what about coffee? Where in the Bible does it say that our strength is found in coffee? Honestly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. It doesn't say that. It says our strength is found where? In God, right? So what is the best way for you to wake up in the morning? I gotta have my cup of coffee before I can do anything. How about I gotta have God before I can do anything? Is it really something we depend on? And if it is something then we depend on in order to for us to function normally, then it has become a fleshly lust that we're seeking to fulfill to make this earthly body function the way we want it to. God is all we need. He made us. He knows how we work. He can do it better than coffee can. And guess what? God it does not have caffeine that becomes addictive. Let me change gears. What about food or entertainment? Does your life revolve around food or entertainment? Do you ignore people because you're obsessed with work? I'm too busy. Or you ignore people because you're obsessed with the digital universe that's in the little device you hold in your hand. What about your favorite TV show that you just can't miss? So everything else gets prioritized around that. What about sports? Does your schedule revolve around kickoff time for the Steelers game? Now, I know it wouldn't be the Pirates game for obvious reasons, okay? Steelers, different story. But truly, do we organize our life around these things because they're more important to us than serving God? There's lots of things that we can use as excuses that become idols in our life, that control us. And it's all based on our fleshly lusts. And it's simple things that we wouldn't even think about, and yet we think we need them, and we prioritize them ahead of God. Number three, here's question three. What do I let interfere in my love for others? And I'm going to keep this real short. Is your mindset, well, I have to make sure I take care of myself first. God doesn't give you what you have for you. We are stewards. We are channels. In Ephesians 4.28, 
it says, to the one who steals, let him steal no more, but let him work with his hands. Why? So that he can have enough stuff for himself and take care of his family? No, it says, let him work with his hands so that he may have good things to give to others who are in need. That's the purpose for our work. That's the purpose for the things that God gives us, to meet the needs of others. And you think, well, what about me? Well, if all people in the church were focused on meeting the needs of everyone else, then everybody would have everything they needed. Why do we have poor people? Because people are selfish. And what I have belongs to me, and I'm not going to give it to anybody else. God blessed me with this, not you. Well, he blessed you with it to help the other people. What about, I can't help that sick person because I don't want to get sick myself. Is your health more important than that person's soul? What about if people see me with that person, what will other people think of me? Did Jesus consider his reputation when he met with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors? They had a need, and he had the answer. That's all that mattered. So all of these things are evidences that if these control our lives, if these have, if we built a dependence upon them other than God, apart from God, then these are now the spiritual lusts, exactly what Peter's talking about we need to avoid. They are the things that interfere with our spiritual journey and are accomplishing what God wants us to for his kingdom on this earth. And so Peter says, avoid, abstain from these lusts. So in in order to abstain, we have to be controlled by something else. Don't let these control you. What about what should control us? Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says, Be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. His point is, as alcohol can overcome and overtake the control of your human faculties, that's the way we should let the Holy Spirit control us. We're no longer in control of our own speech. We're no longer in control of our own actions. We're no longer in control of our own thinking. It's all now governed by God's word and God's spirit. And when God's spirit's in control, rather than our physical desires and lusts, then our lives will look different to those people around us. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh, in other words, works created by our fleshly lusts, This is the actions that come out of it, are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, you say, I haven't done any of those, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, anybody get angry lately because you didn't get what you wanted or somebody didn't do what you wanted them to do, strife, disagreements, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. And he says, of the which I tell you before, as have I told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Living in our own lusts will produce this, but it's also a manifestation that we don't have the Spirit of God in us. Now, I'm not saying we'll never sin if we're saved. I'm saying it will not become the pattern of our life. Now, Paul listed that last one, temperance, which is self-control. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, basically, temperance, 
We are to have temperance or self-control in all things. Now, if you think about it, what is self-control? It's not me controlling all the things that are in my life. It is controlling self. In other words, controlling my flesh. Paul says, I subdue or I put under my body. I, I suppress it. In other words, I push down those desires that come out of my body because I know they're not going to help me toward the goal that wants me to, to, to do, to accomplish. And so when we get control of our bodies through the power of the Holy Spirit, when we control those lusts, when we have discipline, that's the word I think that Paul's list, uh, leaning toward, we discipline ourselves not to live according to our fleshly lusts, but according to God's Spirit, then our lives will be different. Instead of living to eat, we eat to live, right? Instead of having to start our day with coffee, we'll start our day with God. He's more important. Our schedules will be clearly defined by love for God and love for others. And so will our spending and our investment. Our sexual desires will be fulfilled only through God's ordained means of marriage and only with your spouse instead of through immorality or the internet. Church and fellowshipping with God's people will become a priority because we are all one people, same family. And all of our needs for acceptance and belonging will be fulfilled in God. I don't care what people think about me. As long as I'm doing what God thinks is right, God will see who I really am, and I don't care what people think or say at all. And that's why Peter says, avoid fleshly lusts. The reason because they war against your soul. They are, the, the word war, they are aligned in battle formation, ready to attack you and take you captive. That's the meaning of the Greek word here. So what he's saying is when we live by our sinful lust, it's not just uh, accidental, oops, I let that control me again. It's us intentionally surrendering to our lust to let them control us rather than surrendering to the God's Spirit so he will control us. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with either evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when? When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan knows exactly which of your lusts are your one weakness, or multiple weaknesses. And he will continually expose you to them and whisper in your ear, it's okay this time, it's not going to kill you. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, yes, it will kill you. It will kill your love for God, it will kill your love for others, and it may kill you physically. So Peter says, these lusts war against your soul. Not your flesh, your soul. They rob us of spiritual blessings. They interfere with our relationship with God and others. And they may actually keep us from truly being saved because we think we're saved, but we live for the world. 
And that's not true salvation. And so our lusts are the weapons that Satan uses to spiritually defeat us, to knock us off course from our Christian walk, to start serving ourselves rather than living for God and serving others. It all comes back to our lust. It's our lust that anchor us to this earth. It's our lust that keep us from ascending to spiritual heights in our own lives. It's our lust which cause us to love the earth too much and what it offers more than God. And that's exactly why many Christians feel weak and discouraged in our walk is because we live according to our fleshly desires and those control us rather than letting God control us And the world cannot fulfill what God wants to fulfill in our lives. And so Peter says, abstain from it. Now for time, I'm not going to get to verse 12 this morning. But Peter says, having our conduct honest before the world, so that they, speaking evil against you, may by your good works behold and glorify God in the day of visitation. We'll have to pick that up next week. But I think the warning is clear. And I think we need to understand what Peter is saying to us. Be careful what controls you. And it could be as simple as a cup of coffee, but if it's more important to God to you than God, if you depend on that more than you depend on God, then it has become an idol and we're fulfilling our fleshly lust and seeking those things. The Lord is our portion. He is all we need. And we need to start living like we believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you for your truth in which you admonish us and challenge us. And Lord, it's been hard to hear your word today because there are so many things in our lives that we let take control, that we let govern everything that we do apart from you. But Lord, help us to make you the priority. Help us to see you as everything and help us to remember this is just a journey that we're living right now. Our goal is a heavenly kingdom. And so may we not get attached to this body and to this earth too much that we miss what you have for us. Just teach us, we pray, remind us when we need to be reminded and convict us of those times that we fail. But Lord, you are merciful, you are ready to reconcile, you are ready to forgive and to restore us back to the path on which we should walk in your strength. And so we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 364, Yield Not to Temptation.